Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. First thing to say on this week's episode is thank you to everyone who nominated us for a Chortle Award earlier in the year. Uh, if you didn't see on Twitter, we were very honoured to win a Legend of Lockdown Award from Chortle this week. So thank you very much if you nominated us, if you've been supporting us on Patreon, or you've just been listening to the shows and the live streams and everything else throughout the past year. If you would like to support the show and everything else at Cosmic Shambles, patreon.com slash bookshambles uh, is where you can go to pledge your support for this show. You get extended episodes each and every week, plus tips for existence and uncanny hour and all the other stuff we get up to. There's an extra 40-odd minutes for Patreon supporters of Book Shambles this week, as this is another episode where we have two guests on. Patreon supporters will get the full versions of both chats as two separate podcasts over on Patreon. But on the normal podcast here, you will get half an hour of the best of with both Ginny Smith and Melanie Challenger. And first up, it's Ginny. So here is Robin and Josie. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. And uh, today we have two guests and uh, both of them looking at the uh, different ideas of our understanding of what it is to be human. Uh, later on, we're going to be talking to Melanie Challenger, who is looking at the animal side, because, of course, sometimes human beings do have a very often this issue of there are humans and there are animals. And we create this divide between the two, as opposed to merely seeing the connections that are around. So we're going to be talking to Melanie Challenger. But first, before we look at that, a, a, a broad view where we deal with lots of different bits and pieces of the human being now we're just going to go to a very simple part of the human being merely the brain um which has of course been totally understood now probably for for three or four hundred years uh so please welcome our guest Ginny smith hello Hi Ginny. There. How i'm are well you? thanks thank you for having me on oh thanks so much for coming on I have to write first of all because uh, like in the in the history of, of of psychology and neuroscience the understanding of the brain where we're beginning you know we see more and more overlap now I want to before we get to the good stuff what do you look back in the last 50 years I know you can't look back I mean you're using books I'm not <laughs> saying it but uh, the, as the big errors in terms of wow we actually because I think it is in quite re- you know that I know how rapidly these things change but in our recent history we've had some pretty what yeah. turned out to be preposterous well, I mean ideas. if we're talking sort of recent history so I'm not going to go back as far as phrenology and measuring skulls <laughs> and stuff which obviously I'm sure uh, yeah that that was that was a bit of an error um but even more recently when fmri machines were brought in in the kind of 1990s there was this big push for finding the area of the brain that does x and it was mm. it was and and that was the cutting edge science of the time because we'd never before had the ability to look inside a functioning live human brain while it was doing stuff so it was really really exciting and you put people in these machines and you could see this area of the brain is active when they do x this area of the brain is active when they do y so like no shade on the scientists who did it at the time that was that was the new frontier and it was great 
but technology has moved on and we're now discovering that it's it's a little bit more complicated than that there are there are things that can be localized to certain regions but most things particularly when we're talking about more kind of complex things the things that make us human it tends to be networks rather than areas that we're now talking about so i think that's one of the big transitions that's happening now we're going from the area that does what this to the network that does this and even within brain areas we're finding opposing networks of neurons in the same area that do opposite things so it's kind of a technology problem as much as anything that the better our resolution gets the kind of more detail we can see the brain in and we're realizing that we've oversimplified things a bit with because of the technology we had before it's like telescopes no no it's like telescopes totally Um, but how deeply frustrating to be like oh right we've got better technology so oh right everything was wrong everything's wrong start again (laughs) Pretty much. But isn't that the problem that that's not the because I mean I remember you know years ago talking to people who went the trouble is fMRIs they cost a lot of money mm-hmm. so every time you go right you better find out there are very specific areas of brain because we're mm-hmm. we're spending a lot of money on that and that that then I mean that's the interesting thing where sometimes when when you you I mean like in the last couple of weeks Richard Dawkins talking about the fact that science isn't a social construct and these kind of things but but science is filled. Or would you? Or would you, you? might argue against it, but it, it's filled with different kind of. Hang on a minute, we've spent money on this, or we have an emotional attachment to this idea that it's not as simple as just saying the view of oh, we got the machine, we found out a thing, we just moved on. Mm-hmm. No, totally, and and I think you're right that like scientists beliefs and the pressure to get positive results does have a big impact on the science that's out there um i found this really interesting research about pheromones when i was writing the book and it turns out that something like 90 percent of pheromone research is done on these four chemicals which I'm not going to say now because they have horrible <laughs> names that I pronounced once for the audiobook and I'm never going to pronounce again. <laughs> um, but the reason for that is because a company, well, two of them, it was because a company could make them and they published a paper saying we think these things are pheromones with no real justification for that. And then scientists have followed that paper. So these pheromones we don't even know if they're pheromones, but they're what the research has been done on because it was possible for scientists to get them. Um, Mm. And that meant they could, and the other two are known to be pheromones in pigs. So you can buy them in a product that's designed to get pigs to mate. So again, the research has been done on those pheromones in humans, not because they're the most likely ones to produce an outcome, but because they were accessible. So that there's there's always other things other than that nice kind of like, we're going to do the best possible science with the best possible things. There's always reality comes into the way. What can you get hold of? What's the technology that you have? How much money do you have? What's going to get you published results? All of those things. I think you have to think about those as well. And can I just inquire as to this pig medicine? I was wondering if I could get hold of a little bit of it. <laughs> no, ask me why. <laughs> wow, it's, gosh... It is funny because you just can't help but revert to a state, which I suppose is quite a childish state of, well, you know, they must be doing the best in all best 
uh, the best of all best possible worlds it must be the case and, mm. and when these things are sort of laid bare it does feel yeah i still think science is the best way that we have of finding out sure. about the world so like it's not perfect but that doesn't mean we should give up on it it's still mm-hmm. better than like just daydreaming or it's the best that whatever. humans can do it's the best the that we can do at the moment but we should keep striving to make it better yeah. But daydreaming is good as well. Daydreaming is. is very often a starting point. You no, know, totally. Einstein starts with a daydream, then he goes, someone else do the equations. It's not my, you know, I mean, that's <laughs> the great thing about Einstein. So, some of the, oh, I hate all this bit. Um, but that's that's what I find. I mean, I do find it sometimes disturbing. Into Matthew Cobb's book about the brain, where he basically said, you know, that one of the issues we have is that there is so much that is unknown and we have these moments which we think are leaps and then we have to and that I would imagine you know you writing this book it must be one of the hardest subjects to the constant cross-referencing to double because it only takes one error and someone will go oh well that that book's and and I I would say of all the areas to to, to write in at the moment this is one of the most problematic in, in going hang on a minute there's this research here and there's this research here so I mean how much I can imagine the writing might have been a joy, but the, there must have been points where you just went, I wish I'd not gone into this area when I was younger. Yeah, I would say something like 90% of my time was reading and talking to scientists and 10% was actually putting words on paper because it, it was just that. And almost everything, you can find a paper that says the opposite. So you end up having to kind of read as many things as you can, talk to as many people as you can, and then say, okay, it looks like this is the consensus at the moment. Um, And I am sure there are things in the book that some people will think are wrong. And there may be things that I wrote in the book eight months ago or a year ago that since new things have come out and, and they've changed it. But it was my best attempt at understanding and synthesizing and simplifying to some extent what was out there as I was writing it um and and I think neuroscience changes so quickly as well um I did end up doing some some quite interesting uh, I found the kind of historical side of things quite interesting and also that's not going to change so that was quite a nice little break <laughs> like, how did they discover this um chemical okay that's that's this, a little bit easier to do that section but I also think it's really interesting some of the the kind of stories that you get when people were kind of trying to discover new things and the things that they had to do are, are quite yeah quite astonishing Josie did you go into an fMRI I was gonna say we did we were part of an experiment on comedians which was about improvisation and was about the fact that when comedians are improvising because of the fact that they've practice performance so much they often have other thoughts going on in the background in a way that when somebody who's not done that a lot is improvising their whole brain is focused on that but I've since found out I've ADHD, so I'm like, well, of course I had other thoughts going on in the background. That's my brain. Um, so I feel like I was a false. <laughs> and <laughs> I imagine. No, but like- that's part of it. I think you would also, because it is about what they basically found out was they found out almost nothing. They found <laughs> out that the bit of the brain, as Josie was saying, that goes yap, 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 doesn't have to consecrate and going yap, 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 because that's what we do. Because you practiced mm-hmm. it. And, and and so it was. That was all they really, and they couldn't ever publish it because too many of the comedians wiggled around in the fMRI. <laughs> they said and... what they told me was they'd found out that Joe Lysett was very funny. 
And I was like, yeah, he is very funny. They were like, he was funny. This, was, like, just, yeah. this was just a way for a bunch of scientists to get free comedy <laughs> gigs, wasn't it? Yeah, I think basically. <laughs> but Joe, Lys- I mean, it changed his career because oh, no one yeah. else had the license. Joe Lysett could go into a meeting and go, scientists have officially found me funny. And everyone <laughs> went, why didn't I get that certificate? Well, you weren't very good in the fMRI. You lost your nerve when we said improvise around biscuits. I just I've went- forgotten about that. That was such a weird afternoon of my life to be like, <laughs> oh, hello, yes, just come for that. Yes, of course, I'll tell you a story about doors. Okay, good day. <laughs> it was very weird. And- what fi- what were the greatest rope because this is an area of course you studied for a long time but what what were the areas that you found most revelatory in writing this book i think it was the the kind of intricacies and this this idea that you can have neurons in the same area of the brain using the same neurotransmitter doing opposite things so quite often during a chapter I would be writing something quite happily you know I've read loads of papers I'm writing that serotonin does x and then a few days later I write serotonin does y and I'm like hang on that's the opposite of what I wrote a few days ago and then I go back to the papers and it is actually in a different brain area and maybe there's different receptors being used or perhaps it's the the amount that's being released or the time period over which it's being released but like I knew the brain was complicated but this is kind of like another level of complicated um so I think that was kind of yeah the thing that that made me think like I knew all this sort of serotonin is a happy chemical was an oversimplification but just what level of oversimplification and how complex it is and and as I say the kind of well, the running into the edges of what we know, which happened a lot, where I'd I'd have a question and I'd ask a scientist and they'd go, yes, that's a very good question. <laughs> Maybe we should get someone studying that. Um, or, yeah, so that, that was, was it. And then this kind of joining up thing. So the kind of, well, we understand what the molecules are doing and how they interact and what that triggers in the next neuron. And we also have some understanding about people's behavior, but then correlating one with the other and working out how how can some molecules changing in a tiny area of your brain go all the way through to changing your behavior? And then the opposite as well. How can something you do go all the way through to changing tiny molecules in the brain? I mean, it's basically, yeah, it's... It's a big question. It's it's possibly one of the biggest questions in science. Um, but so yeah, that was kind of the, the the sort of the things I ran into. That I was like, yeah, okay, this is this is a big a big question, a big challenge. Um, and I find that really interesting. That kind of the edge of the edge of science. But that's not all that's in the book. There are some like actual things that we know about the psychology and there are some actual things that we know about the neuroscience. And sometimes I've managed to connect them up um, or scientists have and I've related that. I don't want people to think it's like entirely a philosophical book, but that was kind of the bit that that really got me kind of going, oh, wow, that's that's pretty, yeah, there's a lot of work to do here. Well, what excites you most for the future when you think about like what there's left to research? I think the idea of more personalized brain medicine is one of the things that I took out of the kind of where we're at and where I think we're going. Um, Because, so 
For a lot of, of mental illnesses and brain diseases, we give people drugs that change neurotransmitter levels and mm -hmm. they work. You know, they are the best drugs we currently have for those conditions, but they affect neurotransmitter levels everywhere in the mm -hmm. brain and sometimes in the body as well. And that means that they have side effects. Mm -hmm. If we could tailor drugs that were targeted to one particular brain region or brain network, um, that was actually the one that was affected and that kind of bypass the rest of the brain, we might be able to create drugs that are better and have fewer side effects. And at the moment, there are some people working on kind of drug delivery mechanisms, but how you get a drug to the right place in the brain and then only get it to release in that place is a huge challenge. Um, but there are some kind of alternatives to that. So deep brain stimulation, where they implant um, electrodes inside the brain already kind of does that because they can target them. So it's often done for Parkinson's disease and they're implanted just in the area which has stopped producing dopamine and they stimulate those neurons to kind of shortcut it so you don't need the dopamine. Um, but it's 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 brain surgery, you're putting something deep inside the brain. So that's really dangerous. But they're now starting to look at things you can do through the skull. So I know, Robin, you had TMS, didn't you? Transcranial magnetic stimulation for mm. an RI event. And that's a thing where they, they put magnetic pulses through the skull, or you can do it with electric pulses as well. And again, if you can target those to specific brain areas and you can kind of reboot those areas, um, so I think that idea of kind of targeting drugs to brain areas, but then also possibly personalizing them to individuals. Mm -hmm. um, so again, a lot of the time at the moment, we know that not all brain drugs work on everyone. So um, depression treatment is the kind of classic example that someone goes to the doctor with depression, they decide they need to try antidepressants there's something like a 30% chance that their person will respond to the first antidepressant they're tried on. And doctors know this, but there's no other option. You have to tr give them that, wait six weeks, see if it works, give them another one. Mm -hmm. If we could at some point scan someone's brain to find out what exactly is going wrong in their individual brain to cause the depression, there might be better ways of targeting knowing which treatment to give them. So in the same way that we're starting to get personalized cancer medicine based on people's genomes, perhaps one day we'll get personalized brain medicine based on our connectomes, our brain structure or brain activity. Um, that's like a bit of a way off, but I don't think it's unbelievable. I think it could be something that happens. It feels like such a wonderful frontier as well, because, you know, that could lead to so much effective treatment of things like Parkinson's, things like dementia, but also like from a, on a personal basis, I'm like, well, I know from meeting other people with ADHD, how different we all are and how different our reactions to different medications are and things like that and how much, how differently affects, it affects each person. and how wonderful to be able to be like, well, I know exactly what my brain is doing. And when I choose to, I can make it do this instead of this. And there we go. Like, wow. It feels... There's a danger there, though. Yes. No, it feels my, Michael Crichton wrote about this. <laughs> we were talking okay. about this the other day in The Terminal Man, one of his early 70s books, where there's a guy who uh, has kind of... Um, 
aggressive bursts in his brain which basically make him commit acts of well it looks like he's going to commit a murder and they manage to place something in his brain that uh gives him just a nice little hit of i think it's dopamine in the in the in the book and and it just oh it's all right so every time he gets to the point dopamine of wouldn't do that act it goes oh yeah, it's, it's 1973 1973 no but what happens is oh. he becomes so addicted to it oh, that his brain keeps okay. making him commit terrible acts and george siegel dies oh, in the end so God, maybe your george utopian vision die. it doesn't quite match up with right. michael Crichton's 1972 i've never thought of it like 1975 that. adaptation i've never thought I of it that is that is that's always a danger with brain anything and i mean it, it's already happening so i talk a bit in the book about um brain enhancing drugs and actually a lot of them started off as medications for adhd so things like ritalin um mm-hmm. and now apparently they're really prevalent in universities people use them to help with studying and that sort of thing Mm. um modafinil is another one that's really interesting we don't know how it works yet but um it's it seems to be quite good at helping people stay awake and concentrate and it was initially a treatment for narcolepsy but of course now people who don't have narcolepsy are buying it on the black market to help them stay awake and concentrate which is really dangerous because you don't know what you're getting when you buy it on the black market um well, look uh, at ketamine. It was just for horses to calm down. It was just for horses. Except now ketamine is a potential treatment for depression, um, which is really interesting. There's some fascinating research around that because Whoa. unlike things like SSRIs, which take six weeks to work, mm-hmm. people with severe depression, there have been cases of them feeling better after one dose of ketamine within hours. Um Whoa. And so, but because of its use as an illicit drug, there's a lot Mm -hmm. of barriers to research around it. So I think, yes, there are dangers with with anything that affects the brain, but it's not a new danger. It's just a kind of extrapolation of current issues. Yeah. I find the MDMA stuff really interesting in terms of... Oh, like microdosing. Well, people who've suffered from, you know, severe uh, depression, which is connected to, say, post-traumatic PTSD. stress disorder, mm. the way right. to kind of detach that uh, memory by going through it at the time one also having, I think that's right, it's M- MDMA at the same time. And this kind of... Yeah, uh, I think what it does is it effectively puts them in a very relaxed state where they can recall the memory without experiencing the trauma again. Because the problem with PTSD is normally memories kind of detach themselves from the emotion the longer ago they were. So you can remember something and know it was an emotional event, but you don't feel the emotions um i think the way the mdma therapy works is that they are asked to recall the memory but after taking the mdma which somehow puts them in a kind of more relaxed um open state and helps detach i haven't looked into that in a huge amount of detail but there's some interesting work with propranolol which was is a um blood pressure medication which Um, they think does something similar so because it reduces your heart rate and kind of damps down that fight or flight response if you recall a traumatic memory after you've taken propranolol it seems to help you save the memory without the emotions as well so there's some really interesting work that I cover in the book looking at propranolol as a a treatment for PTSD and kind of how that works um, and how that links with 
how our memory works in kind of people who don't have PTSD as well. Ginny, um, uh, can I ask you about um, other uh, books, maybe in in this field that you've really enjoyed that you'd recommend or, well, anything you'd really recommend that you've enjoyed? But pick things that are out of print, obviously, <laughs> because we don't want to in any way affect your sales. <laughs> um, well, the, the mental health stuff, um, I've got to give a big up to Dean because he's just had uh, put out Psychological, um, which Dean Burnett, who's obviously a, a regular on the, the um, Cosmic Shambles Network, which is great. It's um, I've So basically, while I was writing the book, I only let myself read books that were linked directly that I like needed information from. Mm-hmm. Um, so since submitting, I've been like, ah, I can catch up on other things, which has been quite nice. But um, but yeah, the sort of the mental health stuff, he handles that really, really well in, in psychological. And it was quite interesting, actually, because I do a section on depression in my chapter on mood. And he's got a whole chapter on depression. So he manages can go into it in a bit more detail than I can. But we picked different theories. Um, so he goes into a theory that I didn't even touch on and I go into a theory he didn't even touch on, which kind of just shows you how many different theories there are for all these things. Um, but yeah, so uh, whatever, uh, so, sort of still in the, the kind of psychology area. Um, so I, oh, The Memory Illusion by Julia Shaw, if you're interested in kind of memory stuff, um, that's very interesting. She's done some really... Um, interesting work on false memories and things so um did and she do a thing about evil before Has she written oh i think book, that's her is... latest one i haven't read that yet um i think oh, the memory i have read that it's really good that. yeah is it i have yeah i should but put that's that interesting the memory stuff list, is actually. so fascinating i, I was I, I can't remember what how this came up the other day in terms of um the ease with which you can create a false memory and the yeah. danger of that it's is, heartbreaking is really the more you find out about how unreliable memory is, it, it, I can't bear it. <laughs> it is, although actually that's one of these areas that I've been talking about for ages. And mm. then one of the interviews I did for the book, actually with um, the lady who's doing the propranolol research, she was saying that, so the, the kind of false memory thing is if you recall a memory, you put it back into a flexible state. Mm-hmm. And at that point, new information can be incorporated into it. Yes. And when you, what we say, reconsolidate, like set it again in your brain, then you can't tell the new information away, apart yes. from the old. But she's finding that it only enters that flexible state if there's a prediction error. So if something happens that's similar to the original memory, but slightly different. So it's not that every time you recall a memory, it enters this flexible state. It's only if you recall it and there's this element of, oh, I got something wrong. Then your brain does that. Um, So actually, it might not be as bad as we thought. So your brain is still trying to do the best it can for you. Your brain's like, don't worry, we'll get this right. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, we must have missed that first time round. Okay, I'll add that in. Um, But only if, yeah, only if it is this this prediction error. And that actually a lot of the studies on it were probably inducing this prediction error. Well, of course. Oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I think people talk about baby brain, like it's something kind of specific to babies. But my theory is that it's actually just tiredness. Um, like mm. we know sleep is so important for the brain and I mean there might be something going on with hormones as well Ooh. but I think a lot of it is just sleep deprivation 
Yeah, I wanted to ask you. I mean, this mm. is purely narcissistic in itself, but I, I, I found the breastfeeding chemicals did such bad stuff to my brain. Oh, really? And I was wondering about what the research is. There research about that? I, I just never felt myself at all, and I was not able to think clearly in the same way. And then I stopped breastfeeding, and I was like, "Oh, hello, here we are. Hi." And it was so profound. It was like stepping into a fog that only cleared sort of 16 months down the line. But that's something, please go and find out for me. <laughs> well, oxytocin is one of the big chemicals that's, that um, induces milk ejection um, and is released in large amounts when you breastfeed um, and seems to also be involved in bonding um, parent and child and also adults as well. But as I've been like, chemicals have lots of different effects. So everyone talks about oxytocin as like, oh, this really nice cuddle chemical and it does all these lovely things, but maybe it does other things as well. There was, um, there was a study that was done in mice that showed oxytocin could bind in the auditory cortex and change how the mouse responded to the cries of baby mice. So like oxytocin does change your brain to kind of be like baby, baby, baby. Um, yeah. So maybe that also gave you that kind of foggy feeling that like your brain couldn't focus on other things. I'm hypothesizing there. The bit, yeah, about, the bit about oxytocin release and breastfeeding is definitely right. The rest of that hypothesis. Um, <laughs> well, but it's believable. Talk in a free and open space where we're not making any conclusions. <laughs> well, Michael Crichton wrote a book and they turned it into a film and Catherine Hepburn is given all this oxytocin. Anyway, she kills loads of people. Um, <laughs> Who's the actor who died in the last one? George Siegel. And yeah. George Siegel sadly see, see, dies. Yeah, it's all it's a right old mess. Um Jenny, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you. Uh, very clever idea as well, because as, as we said, the problem with so much in terms of, of brain research is the speed of changing it. And so the fact that the book comes out on the first of April is of course absolutely perfect. Should anyone go, Well actually and you go, have a look at what day it came out actually. Um, it there came out go. before midday. Yeah. So <laughs> think you're fine. Um Overloaded is available on the first of April. Um yeah, it's a great read. Everybody, please have a look. It's so interesting. And it covers such a broad range of topics as well. Thank you. And now we're going to move on to talking to someone about, again, about understanding what we are. And uh, also from our animal perspective, uh, Josie and I spoke to Melanie Challenger. Hello. Sorry to disturb the conversation. Just to say you are listening to the abridged version of Josie and Robin's book shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version, then you can support us via Patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle-tattle that dropped out of our mouth. Today's guest is Melanie Challenger, who's written a fantastic book, uh, which is uh, about our battle uh, between going, ah, oh, we are wise and clever creatures, not like the other dirty animals, and then the fact that we are actually an animal as well. Uh, and it is uh, a joy to read. It is how to be uh, and how to be animal. That's why I had to look yes. at it, because I always go, <laughs> how to be an animal. And I, You're not I, alone. Yeah, I, I've noticed that, and I'm, I, you know, you 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 wonder about the title, but it's yeah, some people have done that. Um, I I didn't because, you know, I'm of the age where I was alive when Manimal was being um, broadcast, <laughs> and every time I said it to my husband when I was trying to come up with the title, I, it put me in mind of that. So I was just like, no, cut out the Anne altogether. Let's just go straight for animals. That's the important bit. I mean, I was slightly disappointed because as someone who very much approached this as a biography of Simon McCorkendale, the 
1970s and 1980s actor. I felt there just wasn't enough <laughs> Simon McCorkindale in it. Um, yeah, I've missed a trick there, haven't I? <laughs> for those Maybe of you who are of a different age, Simon McCorkindale was the star of Manimal, which I think didn't quite finish a whole series. It was like one... It, it was basically, it was a man who, was it due to, had he drunk from a well that gave him oh, the ability? I can't, I, I can't remember. It really, I would need some sort of therapy to take me back there, I should imagine. But it was an extraordinary concept. <laughs> Clearly somewhere in my mind it stayed there. But uh, yes, yeah. I, yeah, I, for I, those who, I, yeah, Manimal was, he had the power to turn briefly into things. Panther was always in, that, that was in the in the the, uh, uh, the the big trailer normally. You always imagine he was going to turn uh, into a panther, which, as we know, isn't even a, a, a panther's a leopard, isn't it? Is that right? Yes. There I'm we sorry. are. We have covered so much. We've covered uh, uh, all manner of things there. Um, I wanted to start off, though, with, you, 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 I, I always enjoy the quotations that people use uh, as the springboards into chapters. And you chose a quotation from one of my favourite miserable philosophers, possibly <laughs> one of the most miserable philosophers of the 20th century. Uh, his books include A Short History of Decay and The Trouble with Being Born. Uh, which is just what's it? Oh God, it goes downhill. It's born, and then you're just waiting <laughs> to die. Um, and it's uh, um, I know it was E.M. Charon, Emil Charon. Uh, Whereas all beings have their place in nature, man remains a metaphysically straying creature, lost in life, a stranger to creation. Yeah, well, it's a good quote. I mean, the the thing that I've tried to do with the book in terms of philosophy. I mean, there is there is a a lot of I, I hope it wears its philosophy lightly you know I um, a lot of these books particularly let's say on philosophy of mind are really lengthy in some parts wildly tedious and not everybody wants to do that heavy lifting you know um, so but but at the same time I think people are if you can get through all of the kind of logical loops that people end up in in philosophy and get to the core question that philosophers are asking about what it is to be alive, you know, what, what relationship we should have with those ideas and so forth. Everybody's a philosopher and everybody's interesting, so interested in it. So I kind of try in the book to present us with what we maybe need to think about, but not having to go into the kind of um, depressing um, or kind of lengthy uh, madness that has been Western philosophy. I wanted to ask about this uh, this kind of area, but with regards to the natural environment and our distance from it, but also I was thinking about how... So I've moved to Scotland, and one of the reasons I've done it is because I grew up in the southeast of England, and I feel that on a deep level, the changing climate felt wrong and I felt like it was hurting me as an animal. I felt like as an animal, nothing felt right. And so I've moved somewhere that has a climate more similar to the one I grew up with, I think now. I mean, oh, that might, but that might be exaggerating and it's obviously like not scientific, but I have felt that climate change is affecting us as animals and confusing us on a deep animal level that we're trying to suppress and obviously you know how much we are divorced from the natural kind of what's it called um is it phenology it's not phrenology the, the life cycles of nature around us that we used to sort of be living more in tune with and and like what's your feelings around that and around kind of 
us as animals and uh relationship to climate uh, and to the world i mean that's such a good that's no one's asked me that and that's really really interesting um my first response would be on the one hand it's you know it is really very natural and i'm not saying natural good or bad i'm just saying it is very natural up for us and other animals will do this and we will do this too to respond to changes are in our environments that that seem to signal trouble so you know if that is you know climate change is threatening to us for for a lot of reasons we you know it is a, it is existentially you know frightening environment you're going to look at resource shortages you're going to face um you know if you think about that from a deeply biological level you're a, an animal looking at its environment looking at where it's going to be safe and if if those flowers aren't growing this year that you've relied on if those you know if the growing season is different you know you're going to be at a co conscious and unconscious level responsive to that um but I think, you know, climate change more broadly, um, I mean, there are, there are a lot of causes to climate change, but we can certainly, you know, and industrialization is the primary one, of course, it's a consequence of, of the first and second industrial revolutions. But, <clears throat> you know, predominantly, certainly in its, in its extreme form. Um, but I think that under you know the the ultimate cause is is how we have thought about ourselves you know we are a deeply cultural technological animal um we accumulate you know developments and skills over time you know that's what's given us things like the industrial revolution but but when you get to a situation where all of these fantastic developments that you've you've created so we live longer we live better than we did you know than than our ancestors in the industrial revolution did but we're also now changing the landscape in a way that is you know um and earth systems in a way that is potentially an existential risk to us so it's now problematic to weigh that up we have to look at the underlying value systems and that's where we come back to thinking about well what ha you know how do we want to relate to the rest of the world and how much can we and you know what value do we want the rest of the world to have and that is going to require us thinking our way back into nature in a way that we haven't wanted to do up to mm. now um and and i think there's still too much focus on science when it comes to climate change. I totally understand that. You need the evidence there first to prove that there is a problem that you then need to solve. That's what science is fantastic at doing. It gives you your evidence. The evidence doesn't have to be perfect, but it, it gives us a really good working set of, of, of you know, of information to, to respond to and plan for. But in order to know what to do best, you need to look at the underlying value systems mm -hmm. and that isn't the province of science and, and we're not still very good at, at, at doing that and I think we're going to have to do that and part of that is going to have to require us to consider you know um, what what does it mean to live a good life what kind of um, what relationship do we want with um, the the environment as it is what you know and other species and all of those sorts of difficult philosophical questions that we've ignored for a long time we're going to have to bring back onto the table I think but there's an inch. I was just wondering because you deal very well with this. 
the the problem with and and why some people were alienated by ideas of when we become the biological definitions because of again when it's been used in extremist cultures but i i i was thinking of of for instance with you know when you see that bit but we're all animals and so that's why i'm doing it as a justification not to try and rise above our, oh, our yeah. instincts and i think you know with jordan peterson's very strange book where you know the reason i won't use the pronoun that you wish me to is because a lobster wouldn't and i really <laughs> wish that the book was more complex than that when it got onto nature but i don't believe it is i really found his lobster argument to be utterly puerile and that seems to me to be one of our battles which is to go this is what we are we are an animal but it doesn't mean that we therefore go and i'm going to have all the drives that this animal had 50 million years ago or no so it's now that's in the a nonsense it's totally yeah i mean i think that follows from a perhaps a misunderstanding of morality ultimately i mean uh, you know i very early on in the book i i'm i'm you know i i say that um you know, we're, 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 I want us to accept that we're animals, but that doesn't mean that we, um, that doesn't lead us into a kind of uh, lazy version of what it is to be natural. So, you know, in philosophy, this is the kind of naturalistic fallacy, the idea that you, you can't derive what you ought to do from how something is in nature. Um, you know, throughout history, we've tended to pick things from our biology that suit us and and ignore the other bits that we don't like but you know that is that is okay our morality we have moral agency there's no question about that and we there are nascent forms of of sort of moral behavior we can see the continuity certainly among other mammals but you can kind of see it in different kinds of relationships that require constraint on the part of the animal so it could be Usually, you know, it might be care provisioning of young. It's it's some sort of relationship where an individual has to have some sort of measure of control. And usually that's, you know, where our morality is kind of piggybacked on all of that kind of stuff. Nonetheless, we are an animal now with a highly developed moral agency. Um, you know, that's all about responding and weighing as much as you can, you know, what the right thing to do is. And so... You can accept that mor morality is natural. You can accept that, um, but still hold to the fact that nature out there isn't always very nice in the way that, you know, that's not what morality is doing. Morality is stopping and thinking, oh, actually, that's not very nice for my baby. I'm very annoyed with my baby, but I'm not going to slap my baby for not going to sleep because my baby will not like it. So I'm going to control myself, even though I've been trying to put my baby to sleep for five hours now and I'm feeling like <laughs> I'm going to lose the plot, etc. You know, that's what it's, it's, that's it's, you know, grist. That's what it's doing all the time. And if we look at that, I think it gets us out of this awkward situation where it seems like a contradiction, you know, that on the one hand you accept morality is natural and yet na nature doesn't nature looks amoral you know that feels like a really uncomfortable contradiction but i don't think it has to be if we just pay attention to what moral agency is doing um then we don't have to say oh this is good because it's natural i don't think that follows mm. <laughs> um and what is i'm just going to throw a couple more at you what's the last book you bought for someone else Oh, it's probably going to be one of my kids' books. Um, what did I get for Gabe recently? 
I think I got him all of the, because he's of an age now, I got him all of the um, Dark Materials trilogy most wow. recently. Hey, do you find that you're sort of trying to steer your children through what they read? Do you ever sort of have to check yourself and be like, no, I'm not just going to give them that. I'm not just going to give them this. Well, difficult that one. Gabe, my, my um, older son, is a really keen reader, um, which has been a gift um and he so far he i gave him hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy recently for instance and he's 10 you know i wasn't sure no Um, that's the perfect age but he just absolutely lapped it up and i could hear him in the other room laughing to himself (laughs) at night um we have quite similar tastes i think so because he's a very stubborn lad so he will just say no if he thinks i'm wrong um but he does have quite similar tastes so i can be quite intuitive if i I see something um but i've given him things that i didn't read but that you know i i liked the look of so one was the phantom toll booth oh yeah such a great book i didn't read it when i was younger um but he loves that and that's a real family favorite so um but yeah i mean do i do we all as parents um tip over the line of the extent to which yes we do i'm sure i'm sure there's a little bit of (laughs) a bit of that going on I found Diary of Adrian Mole. I was very pleased when my son, he loved those. But of course, now after growing pains, he probably doesn't really want to read the Adrian Mole book about prostate cancer. So, you know, that, that, that's the choice because, of course, Sue Townsend moved on. And I think also just her ability to go into the mind of a uh, early teenage boy is, uh, and yeah, Hitchhikers as well is another one that I would, uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's uh, weak on. Obviously, my son will have to read I Am Legend at the age of 15. Uh, <laughs> I've got there, there, Lathe of Heaven. That's all, all lined up now, Ursula Gwen. That's, uh, there's a lot to go. Um, which one, which Ursula Le Gwen is oh, that? It's the great. one all about uh, Lathe of Heaven, which is about someone who uh, their dreams create a reality, basically, Ooh. that they are able to imagine and, and someone starts to manipulate them to basically get them to keep changing and, and making a new reality. Um, a great one of hers um, is, is it now, what's the title? Is it The Word for World is Forest? Oh, I don't know that one that's a really interesting one going back to the animal uh business because again it's 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 a kind of almost it's all familiar to us it's you know it's us it's different animal they're called creatures the kind of other nearly humans but it's like humans coming up against sort of sim- other kinds of simians it's really it's really interesting it's a great i think the word i mean you have to double check me on that but i think that's the name of it that's a great novel from her oh, i people feel like we ought to start... like looking up stuff so it's yeah. good i feel Certainly. like we ought to start an ursula le guin reading club you and i robin because i feel All like right, then somebody... well, should we do should we start with lathe of heaven well, I've also got a really interesting book that I saw recommended on Twitter. Where have I put it? Oh, this is infuriating. Um, <laughs> I thought it was right by my... I finally there? read Parable of the Sower, the, on, which I think I mentioned the other day, Octavia I'm Butler's sorry. book. Have you oh, read that? I've not read that. That's no, a, a really... I've wanted to. Yeah, it's I've quite a dystopian it. one. So it, there is a bit where... I, I, I'm not quite at the end of it now, uh, but there's, there's a bit where you go, I hope it doesn't keep going down in this direction. 
because it, it's a it's a bit like reading uh yeah there's the, the certain authors aren't there where you 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 go oh well uh you've you've gripped me but now you're taking me into a place i, I think the first time i read zola uh would have been something like um l'assommoir which i've mentioned on this many oh what's that that's the valancourt book of world horror stories <laughs> oh okay valancourt book of world horror stories and it's basically writers from all around the world that i haven't heard of any of them and um each it, obviously in translation but very exciting horror okay, short then. Well, stories set that to anyone who's listening to this uh we're that's going to be the first of our reading club books we'll do that should we start a reading club yes I'd right, love then, it. that's great and also i should mention repeater books have got uh, a new book of occult stories out which is really good we always could bang on about repeater books but uh in fact if this goes out in time they've got a really good uh, sale on their occult books and repeater is so far i love uh the, the, the i think mark fisher was, was was a great influence on a lot of the authors so it, they do all those kind of books which are what do splatter movies actually say about the nature of capitalism and you go this is <laughs> dealing with so many areas i'm interested in mm -hmm. and it means that my homework will be something disgusting um <laughs> thank you so much for 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 joining us today it's, i'm trying to think it's the book because the copy i've got uh the book was out on the uh 25th of june 2020 which of course it hasn't that was no, due to the the lockdown just come out a few days ago um so it's it's brand new out um no it was delayed yeah it was delayed as many books had to be um from from june through to to just this yeah just now oh, yeah. has that been a bit unbearable because i i think whatever happened it's a long wait between that final bit where you know you're told yes we the book is okay now the sentences are all right it's going to be published you know that's that's normally a six month wait whatever at the very least but to wait a year or so, has that been like, oh, I just want people to read it now? Well, there's been, a, I mean, I've I've been conflicted. On the one hand, you know, I, I really um, held back from, from work when I had my couple of boys. So um, that's, so, you know, I, I did a book a long time ago when I was sort of in my late 20s, um, early 30s, then I had my children and I really focused on them. I was working, I was researching, but I kind of, um, I couldn't have, have produced the book until towards the end of that process. So as a mum who stopped and <laughs> to finally come out and engage with people and want to talk to people about ideas and get going again, yeah, it was quite frustrating that the minute that sort of became possible again in my life, then then. But at the same time, we're living in a global crisis, so I can't yeah. have perspective. So <laughs> I have so many friends. At least you know you're not alone in that feeling too. Like, yes, one wants to say, okay, I can't feel like this is personally effect, like to do with me. But at the same time, at least you're not alone knowing that there's so many people. Like I know so many women who have just sort of come out of maternity and are like, yeah. hello world, I'm ready for you. And then the world's so like, true. sorry, I'm not ready for you. Just <laughs> for such you. a solidarity. I mean, it has hit women really hard. And that is something we're going to have to, to uh, deal with on the other side of this. But it, yeah, I mean, for all of us to to be kind of unified in how you know we're not all going through the same things and, and some people are being disproportionately affected more than others but we are you know there is some solidarity in in having to 
all be suddenly homeschooling our kids and and eye rolling and hair pulling and all of the rest that comes along with that um but yeah so that's kept it in perspective but i'm i mean i'm glad i've not obviously done a book on the joys of shopping for instance so at least <laughs> i kind of feel like it's pretty relevant i mean in fact in the book i talk about pathogens and the influence of, of things like this on us anyway and the original example that I had in the book right up until sort of February when we were on the last kind of um, revisions was the original SARS outbreak um, so I just had to update that to SARS-CoV-2 but but it was already you know um, I guess it's all within the territory of the book anyway um, but yeah I just hope all of us are coming out the other side soon of course I think yeah. everyone feels you know, compassion for one another in that way. Yeah. yeah. Also, there is a hope that it's sped up some other... Ch- when you were talking about uh, that, I, I, I was just thinking also about uh, a couple of people I know who uh, uh, are in the medical world. And so they've been going to work and uh, their husbands are the ones who've been staying at home with the kids and in a way that would not have happened b- 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 before in this way. And that weird thing of going, and now she keeps asking for her dad this feels mo- and so in some ways you hope that some of those things that should have really and i do know those changes have been happening but i wonder if that helps speed up that as well i think i mean i don't think there are sort of easy rights and wrongs in any of this i think when we become parents and we're also working in whatever it is that we're doing um or even just we're working at home with our children and and we do having to do that now in isolation in a way that's incredibly stressful and difficult for caregivers you know i think it's never easy to have to raise children and have lots of other extremely pressing tasks to try and to try and do and i don't think we get that right as a society yet it, you know there isn't it's not going to be solved you know even if men were doing more of it it's it's just really difficult to to balance those things out and to give our children the you know first year's environment that they require i think we still haven't got that right and we need to get more nuanced in our discussions about that yeah i agree i agree we all agree we all agree (laughs) (laughs) listen i'm sorry my computer is about to die due to my stupid computer only having one port well i can either have a a a microphone or a battery and even though it was fully charged it's like today the cold has made it go i can't do this today so i'm on you make your computer sing daisy daisy please (laughs) (laughs) that's how we want it to go um thank you very much how, how to be animal as i mentioned is out now canongate uh manly thank you very much for joining us we're thank really you. looking forward to that new shopping book you've been working on uh, <laughs> that you've had to put off do you know um, if you'd written a shopping book we wouldn't be interviewing you i'll tell you that for free <laughs> it wouldn't be of interest to any of us but what about dream shopping how you can go into your you know if, when, when retail has been removed but you can somehow lucidly dream yourself Ooh, into yeah. that's too close to instagram advertising for me i feel like instagram <laughs> advertising does that anyway never have i been so susceptible to advertising as instagram i feel so embarrassed the oh, amount of things yeah, that i go oh, oh. these things so good uh, it, that's yeah. a good happy life <laughs> <laughs> it, okay. it's hard to stay away i mean the whole of the world is increasingly structured that way but i'm i'm trying to resist well that's i think that's a happier animal life as well i don't I just think these things are designed to harm us as creatures. <laughs> it's not. I mean, there's. I get do get a little bit frustrated about that. You know, this kind of 
Are, is social media good for us? Is our technology good for us? You know, and, and some people, are, you know, there's masses of evidence for what, but use your common sense, you yeah, know, yeah. get out and go for a walk, roll around and with your kids and, and laugh, you know, come on. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's yeah, actually yeah. pretty straightforward. We don't need masses of science to yeah. do about it i don't think so. that's like <laughs> diet books though isn't it that eventually yeah. there's a point where you go i think they've covered all the ground there yeah. doesn't need to be another <laughs> and the main, main, main and one is <laughs> apple or mars bar apple or mars bar oh. <laughs> well, thank yeah. you so much for your time it's really really interesting to hear about your work and your book and yeah it's been a pleasure. I'm wanting to come back now. I'm booking myself in for the word for world is forest or whatever it's called for the Ursula Le Guin fan club. You definitely well, we do, should. Yeah, we do. We, we do, would love to start doing a book every 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 few weeks. The because uh, I've got enough deadlines on reading. Also, it'd be so uh, useful. I've got to have your Ravelli's book about quantum mechanics, and it's going to be really difficult. <laughs> but it would be so Ouch. useful to have your perspective on these kinds of fictions as well. It would be so interesting. Um, Thank you so much. All right, I'll see you guys later. Thank you, Molly. Bye. Thank you very much for being our producer as well. Bye. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to do that. Remember, Patreon supporters this week get the full interviews with both Ginny and Melanie and all the other stuff, of course. Rate and review five stars on Apple Podcasts. Back next week with another new episode. Until then, take care, stay safe, and we'll see you soon. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.